This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we take a look at a TV show that tackled the tricky topic of New Zealand racism in prime time and potential political candidates flying kites in the media for their campaigns. And are the national media more interested in Auckland's politics than the audience around the country? But first, we look at coverage of a cricket final for the ages, which gave the media plenty of explaining to do this week. And in a game of fine margins, was England's New Zealand-born match winner motivated to go the extra mile for them by some ill-judged sledging on the radio here by some of our own? Hello, I'm Chris Barrow with the BBC News. In the past half hour, England have won the Cricket World Cup for the first time in a jaw-dropping end to a tense and thrilling final at Lords in London. This report from Lee James... An incredible finish, the like of which has never been seen before, decided this final. A huge six from Ben Stokes and a fortuitous deflection off his bat, which went for six in overthrows, saw England level New Zealand's 241 total. That was how the BBC World Service in London reported the Cricket World Cup final result last Monday at about 7am our time to the entire world. And you don't often hear words like jaw-dropping and incredible in its news bulletins. They're usually much more matter-of-fact than that. And closer to home, at Australia's public broadcaster, the ABC Radio National Overnight host was also startled by the unfolding scenario at Lords. And any New Zealanders listening might have been startled by his name. You're with Trevor Chappell on ABC Radio. As you heard, it's all happening in the cricket. Um, so it's a super, they have a super over. So each team get an over and whoever scores the most runs from that over wins. And if it's a draw at the end of that, then it's the team that hits the most fours. And credit to Trevor Chappell, he knew all about the super over rules, even though he isn't the Aussie bowler of the same name who delivered the final ball underarm in what's arguably now the second most controversial of all the one-day internationals New Zealand's ever played. And this Trevor Chappell was sympathetic to the Kiwis. Because if it wasn't for that ball coming off Stokes's bat and going for four when he was running, then New Zealand would have won. They'll be talking about that. More than just a little bit today, I would think. Well, yes, we were. The ABC Radio National audience that morning must have included a few cricket fans and a few expat Kiwis keen to know what was happening. But while New Zealand faced that final super over, Trevor Chappell took meandering talkback calls about the Soviet space programme. Hello, Max. Yeah, good morning, Trevor. Um, three things. Briefly, first of all, Yuri Gagarin said absolutely nothing useful. And with the World Cup final nearing its crushing climax in London, Trevor Chappell crossed to an expert who lived there who was watching the game on TV, but then turned it off to talk to him about the history of Aussie rules football. Good morning, John. Hi there. Hey, John, I just wanted to check with you. You're watching the cricket as we speak? I was doing. I've just switched it off. And then they lost their guest. You there, John? Hello. There we are. We got you back again. So uh, if you're interested in the cricket, there's one ball to go and New Zealand need two runs. Oh, it's interesting. Well, yes, it was interesting, but also infuriating for ABC listeners who wanted to know what was about to happen at Lords. Another Trevor Chapel then guilty of crimes against New Zealand cricket. Well, here in New Zealand, Three's AM show team, including the former black cap Mark Richardson, relayed the bad news fairly calmly like this at 6.30am. So if you are just tuning in this morning, we have confirmation that England has won the Cricket World Cup at Lords. Oh, in- by a mathematical formula. 
on the final run? According to what I'm hearing in my ear, it goes back to uh, the, the boundaries, uh, the boundaries count back, boundaries. and England have it. But after that, Mark Richardson started freestyling a bit, reading the sports news a few minutes later. It's England's first ever World Cup victory, while the Black Cats will have to wait another four years for a chance. Don't say another four years! You know that term's like fingernails down a chalkboard to New Zealanders. Meanwhile, RNZ dispatched reporter Ben Strang to take the temperature among Wellington's commuters, but he didn't find many who'd actually turned up for work. So he filled the host in instead on another story that got pretty big around the world. Um, The world goes on. Uh, Just a quick question, uh, Ben, about little blue penguins, oddly. They have been reported to be sighted outside the sushi stall in the Central State train station. Any sign of those? That's right. So I've got a secondary role here trying to hunt for some little blue penguins. Yeah. Now, an hour earlier, when the action was unfolding, they were caught out by the boundary countback rule. And what happens if it's 15 runs apiece? Do we go to another super over? Oh, I think, oh, there's, I a, I think there's, a, there's a provision there somewhere where if it gets to the point where um, this is tied again, they might do it again. But I know there's such a thing as a bowl-off, so they actually have six bowlers or five bowlers line up and just try to hit the wickets. It's, it could be as simple as that to decide a World Cup potentially. But no, there was no bowl-off and defeat was eventually snatched from the jaws of victory. He's out! Oh, I think he's out! We have another tie. Oh, they win. Are you serious? Afraid so. Over at News Talk ZB, the veteran voice of cricket Brian Waddle wasn't happy about what he'd seen. I find it very difficult to celebrate a side who didn't win anything today, apart from uh, scoring boundaries, a T20 gimmick, and it doesn't really decide world championships. If you had two runners running in 100 metres and they both crossed the line together, they don't split them up by the number of steps they took. They have a dead heat. And uh, the tournament should have been shared if that was the case. And elsewhere in London, the BBC's Test Match special guest, Jeremy Coney, agreed. But the locals weren't that keen on his idea of sharing the title or even halving the trophy. I'd be happy to share that. Hold on a minute. I've I've got the hacksaw out. No, but you share it before you start the over. It's an arbitrary way of of settling the match. The only thing I would say is going going in. Run rate. Elsewhere in London, one of the MPs on the parliamentary World Cup cricket junket, Chris Bishop, told Morning Report New Zealand didn't actually lose, though Kim Hill wasn't having that. Arguably we did win. Um, you know, the rules, but the rules are the rules. And um, Come on, come on. Arguably we did win. What do you mean? Well, you know, it's, it's an arbitrary thing, thing, isn't it, really? You know, saying it comes down to boundaries. Um, you, could either, you could equally say who took the most wickets, we bowled them out, they didn't bowl us out. But look, we shouldn't quibble. And shouldn't quibble was also, more or less, Mike Hosking's take on News Talk ZB, though he put it a little less succinctly. And you can spend the rest of the day, or indeed the week if you want, arguing why the rules are unfair and what sort of idiot would have made these rules. It doesn't really matter. The rules are the rules. And, and he was still going on about that more than a minute later. The rules are the rules, the rules, the rules, the rules. And we lost on the rules. And so the question to ask yourself today is how much of your time do you want to spend relitigating something that you can't change? Well, the answer to that was less time than it took Mike Hosking to say rules are rules and it is what it is, over and over on News Talk ZB. Now, the Black Caps captain himself, Kane Williamson, said simply, these are the rules of the game we choose to play. And memorably, he had this philosophical take on the critical moment involving Ben Stokes' involuntary match-winning boundary. Yeah, that was a little bit of a shame, wasn't it? Um... <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it's unfortunately that's sort of the game we play, eh? and that, that sort of thing happens um, from time to time. But Be like Kane, chorused many people on social media, and shortly afterwards, these guys in Christchurch were vox-popped on Morning Report and seemed to be channelling his dignity in defeat. Many were steadfast in disappointment. I'm sad, but hey, yeah, I'm a big boy, so I live with it. It's real sad that, hey, that this has had to occur. It is what it is. They make the laws, we just abide by them, yeah. Though they turned out to be the owners of guns handed in at the buyback at the Rickerton Racecourse the previous day under the new law and actually nothing to do with the cricket. Now, one irony that some cricket fans here found hard to take was that England's match winner Ben Stokes was born here. And in one of many, many interviews about that, his father Jared in Christchurch thanked the New Zealand media on News Talk ZB's drive show on Monday afternoon. Thank you very much. The media and all the people in New Zealand have been very gracious in the way that they've, they've accepted that, that Ben is a Kiwi. But one part of the New Zealand media hasn't been gracious to the Stokes Fano at all in the past. Among those taking the loss hard on Monday morning were the comedians of NZME's Alternative Commentary Collective. How did that happen? Oh, how did that... Oh, my God. Stolen from us so many times in this oh, game. Jesus. And just after using the Lord's name in vain there, James McConey plaintively called out the supreme being. Fair enough. Why can't we have nice things? God, is it because we piled on Israel Folau? What, what happened? What have we done to deserve this? Oh. And we don't know whether the ACC crew really believes in God or not, but what about karma? Three years ago, Ben Stokes bowled a disastrous final over that cost England the T20 World Cup. History for the West Indies. 24 from four deliveries and the West Indies win. And back then, two of the current ACC crew, Matt Heath and Jeremy Wells, ripped into the Stokes choke on Radio Hodaki. Ben's mum, Deborah Stokes, heard that and called the station to complain, whereupon Matt Heath pretended to be someone else. He recorded the call and then put it on the air, a pretty bad deception that led to a hefty fine for breaching her privacy and for a breach of broadcasting standards. The management at NZME reprimanded the pair by taking them off the air, though they were already heading to Las Vegas on a promotional trip. And in their holiday podcasts, they were clearly sorry, but not sorry. That suspension really hurt, didn't it? Um, you know, on, on, on being suspended from the radio on that flight over to Las Vegas. And, and look, that, that's been smarting the whole time we've been here. Jeremy Wells went on to have another poke at Ben Stokes' mum, Deborah. Ring up a radio station's direct studio loan. Surprise, you're on air. Stick up for your son after he's bowled half volleys on leg stump in the final over of the T20 World Cup final. Get a couple of young businessmen stood down. Ben Stokes' mum. You are the Hauraki Breakfast, New Zealander of the Week. And so did his mate, Matt Heath. She just really wanted to give us a big telling off, didn't she? And uh, look, I, I, I've been told it's morally wrong what I did, telling her that uh, she wasn't on here when she was, but um, I stand by it because I think it's funny. So could it be that that gave England's Kiwi-born match winner extra motivation on Monday, another one of those fine margins that ended up making the difference? Perhaps the Radio Hauraki and ACC blokes are lucky that the Black Caps have taken the it-wasn't-meant-to-be line. If they were looking for media scapegoats, there could be fans with pitchforks making a beeline, not for the ICC over their daft rules, but the ACC in their commentary caravan.
problem of the twentieth century is the problem of the color line, the relation of the darker to the lighter races of men in Asia and Africa, in America and the islands of the sea. Those were the words of W.E.B. Du Bois from his 1903 classic, The Souls of Black Folk. And if the past week is anything to go by, it looks like in our islands in the sea, the problem of racism could well dominate the 21st century as well. The Prime Minister has joined international leaders who have condemned as racist comments made by the US President Donald Trump. That was the lead item on RNZ's 8am news bulletin last Tuesday. Shortly after that, Morning Report's Corin Dan introduced a story like this. A Northland iwi leader says the vandalising of cultural statues is disturbing. Earlier this year, a rangatane carving in Manawatu Gorge Reserve had its wooden penis chopped off by a local who found it offensive and too big. Just last week in Gisborne, a statue of James Cook had the words Pākehā thief and this is our land scrawled on it. The former chief executive of the Māori Language Commission and now chairperson for the far north iwi Terarawa is Hami Piripi. Kia ora. Kia ora. But Hami Piripi wasn't convinced that graffitiing a Captain Cook statue and castrating a Māori carving had much in common. They are a different scenario because in the case of Cook, uh, you know, it, I think it, it, it can be clearly established that Cook was the beginning of the colonisation period of, of this country and, and everything that sort of came with it. Um, but in the case of the of the uh, carving in the Manawatu, it was um, penis envy, you know, and and uh, that's a, that's a, that's a, a very different scenario. That's an attack on culture. It's an attack on history. Around the same time on Tuesday, across on TVNZ Breakfast, host John Campbell was introducing a story like this. Yesterday morning, the cricket not only robbed the black caps of the World Cup, kind of, it robbed us of a chance to assess something that has already got about it, the sense of being historic. Hundreds of Māori, including iwi leaders and social workers, gathered in Auckland over the weekend for a hui about Oranga Tamariki. The hui was the first step in a Māori-led inquiry into the controversial government agency that's currently subject to intense scrutiny, including two other external inquiries from the Children's Commissioner and the Ombudsman. And that night, Māori TV's weekly news programme, Te Ao, began. As Matariki drew to a close last week, the words, This is our land and Pākehā thief, were painted on a statue of Cook in Gisborne. This year, of course, marks 250 years since Cook landed, waved his flag, fluttered his hanky, and in accordance with the doctrine of discovery, claimed these islands for his king. So for many Māori... Cook's anniversary is just another very public slap in the face. So there's no shortage of things to talk about when it comes to racism and the history of colonialism in New Zealand. The perfect time, you might think, for an in-depth documentary exploring this complicated and vitally important topic. Well, last Sunday, Television New Zealand screened the second episode of That's a Bit Racist, a two-part documentary funded by New Zealand on Air to the tune of $380,000. Tittle Fano, log out of Facebook and turn off Twitter. Time to take a break from throwing online stones and tackle one of the most taboo subjects in modern life. Fuck off, nonsense! They're not us, we're not them. I argue just the same. I think they should be in their own countries. We're going downhill. 
That was the unmistakable voice of Don Brash, ending that montage of historical footage at the start of episode one of That's a Bit Racist. And it wasn't the last we were to hear from the former leader of the ACT Party. I mean, in 1840, uh, Māori had no written language, had not invented the wheel, they were still can- practising cannibalism, and slavery. Uh, none of those things we want to return to. Two minutes Googling reveals that in 1840, Māori had a far higher literacy rate than the settler community. Cannibalism had all but ceased by the 1830s, and within a decade or two, Māori would construct water wheels up and down the country and be exporting flour to Australia. The results of contact, not colonisation. Don Brash has become a sort of go-to man for anyone in the media wanting a 1950s view of race relations in New Zealand. Over the last month, he was quoted in 10 stories on stuff dealing with race issues. Over the same period, Tariana Turia, Marama Fox, Hone Harawera and Materia Ture, all former political leaders, like Brash, were quoted just four times combined. It's hard to think of any other pundit who could be so blatantly wrong about such easily verifiable facts in a topic they claim to have studied and remain so in demand by the media. Dr Arama Rata of the University of Waikato, who appeared directly after Don Brash, and that's a bit racist, had a theory on why that might be. Yeah, I think there's um, a tendency whenever we talk about um, racism or immigration or some of these really meaty topics... Uh, for those people who are afraid to sound politically in- incorrect to kind of disengage or be quiet in those conversations. And so all that's really left is the space that's occupied by those people who are not afraid of, of being perceived as racist or, or as being politically incorrect. And so they tend to dominate the conversation and dominate the headlines. The inaccuracy of Don Brash's characterisations of 1840 Aotearoa New Zealand went uncommented on, and that's a bit racist. The frenetic style of the documentary didn't really lend itself to reflection or fact-checking. And to be fair, Don Brash was something of a lone voice amongst the lineup of talking heads that ranged from academics to school kids to Oscar Kitely, who all shared examples of racism in New Zealand. In a mostly favourable review, listener TV columnist Dinah Whitstall wrote... It's not always a comfortable watch, and not just because of the subject matter. The mood is mostly light, the style, short attention span. There's fascinating archival footage, but it flies by so fast a viewer risks whiplash. There are games of colonial bingo and possibly too many play school parodies, but they demonstrated the show's modus operandi. Be playful, but pack a punch. Here's an example of one of those play school parodies. It's fun and easy to make a car like this. You could make yourself one at home. We just got some boxes from Raj's Dairy and a cardboard tube and a paper plate like this. And there you have your steering wheel. (laughs) Perhaps we can all have a turn at driving today. That's a great idea, Lynette. Raj, how would you like to be our driver today? Big Ted said Raj couldn't drive the car because it isn't a Prius. He said the people who wear silly hats and talk funny are normally Uber drivers. (laughs) Other critics were more damning. TV critic Graham Tuckett on RNZ's afternoon programme. It just came across as a little bit, I'm not going to say lip service because I'm sure the people behind it absolutely had the point to make and it's a very valid point and it's a point that cannot be made enough over and over again but it did feel like a slightly light entertainment take on something that probably deserves an actual documentary and maybe like some actual stories and some real journalism. If the documentary could claim to have introduced something new to the debate it was the attempt to quantify the level of racism in New Zealand. We asked Harvard University to help quantify racism in Aotearoa. 
They found a whopping 98.4% of Kiwis believe people are discriminated against because of their race. However, only 24.1% admitted they had personally discriminated due to race. Say what? I know, right? Does that add up to you, Chef? Yeah, nah. And the occupation most likely to discriminate? Can you guess it? Management. Oh, those managers, eh? The hirers and the firers. That's a bit racist co-host Siobhan Ruakiri and Joe Holly reflecting on some startling statistics there. There's plenty to unpack in those two figures alone. Basically everyone in New Zealand, according to the study, accepts that there is racism here and nearly a quarter of them admit to having discriminated against someone on the grounds of their race. But the point of the Harvard study is that it delves into implicit bias, the racism buried in our subconscious. Time for one last look at the Harvard bias test results. 72% of Kiwis felt they were neutral and had no racial bias. But when tested, Harvard found only 24% of Kiwis were genuinely neutral. And the doco did have some examples of how that implicit racism might be manifesting itself. A recent report found 95% of Pākehā babies were resuscitated. 92% of Māori. 89% for Pacifica. And 86% for Indian babies. You could usefully spend a whole documentary looking at how racism impacts on health outcomes or educational ones, or, well, the list just goes on and on. Last week's RNZ Insight programme was a great example of journalism focusing on just one aspect of how a Pākehā-dominated system has negatively impacted on Māori. It would be more than 20 years before I'd see my birth parents again. My birth mother... Uh, my birth mother told me of her sadness, how she missed me. That was Labour MP Paul Eagle recounting his experience of adoption during his maiden speech. The MP for Rongatai featured in How Closed Adoption Robbed Māori Children of Their Identity. And reporter Teanawa Hurahanganui showed that it didn't have to be like that. Strumming the guitar comes naturally to my dad, John Hurihanganui. He's playing a waiata he wrote for his dad in my koro a Pirahama. But koro a Pirahama was not my dad's birth father. He raised him through whāngai, a traditional Māori practice similar to adoption, where a child is placed into the care of someone in the wider whānau. No gimmicks, no frenetic editing, just a focused look at the issues of adoption from a Māori point of view. Jeremy Rose reporting there on That's a Bit Racist, a publicly funded two-part primetime probe into racism in New Zealand aired by TVNZ this past fortnight, along with, as you heard there, a few news stories over the same period, proving what a hot topic that is right now. Last weekend, the headline on the editorial in the Sunday Star Times was pretty ominous, the creeping influence of party strategists at local body elections. But actually, the piece was just about one of the upcoming local elections, the one in Auckland. The paper's editor, Tracy Watkins, began with this. Oh, to be a fly on the wall at the Morningside Tavern, where Auckland mayoral hopeful John Tamahiri is said to have set up his unofficial campaign headquarters. 
Working for the former Labour Government Cabinet Minister, a former National Party President and current PR professional Michelle Bogue and a former National Party MP Christine Fletcher, who's currently Deputy Mayor of Auckland. Now She was described by Tracy Watkins as an Epsom grandee, a piece of code that some Aucklanders reading their national newspaper might get, though others around the country, maybe not so much. And alongside those two, John Tamahiri also had long-time trade unionist and advisor to left-leaning politicians, Matt McCartan. Now, Tracy Watkins described this combination as audacious because... Presumably the strategy is to pick off disaffected centre-right voters who ticked goff last time. McCartan's value is his organising genius and his knowledge of how to turn out the old-school Labour vote, where Tamahiri will also have ready appeal. Nothing at all about any possible policies that might affect Auckland. And it was all similarly strategic when the Herald's political editor, Audrey Young, profiled Team Tamahiri in the Weekend Herald last month. Now, she added that a former Sunday news journalist, Joe Lose, was also part of the crew. He's also a PR man for the Waipurata Trust, chaired by John Tamahiri in the past. And another PR man, James Polhill, was also in the mix. But at this point, many readers of the Sunday Star Times might be asking, what does all that really mean, apart from further proof that former politicians and PR people can be hired for political campaigns? In the Sunday Star Times last weekend, Tracy Watkins also mentioned the political strategy and the strategists employed by the incumbent Phil Goff. And then there was this. News on Sunday that former Mayor John Banks is weighing up another crack at Auckland is unlikely to tilt the scales much. But nevertheless, she rated it important enough to take up half of the facing page, page three, in the Sunday Star Times. And again, it was the involvement of advisers that triggered the story. John Banks has hired a team of heavyweight political strategists as he weighs up a shot at the Auckland mayoralty. John Banks has got the Topham Guerin communications firm and a former Crosby Texter staffer in his corner to weigh up the viability of a tilt at the title, in case you're interested. Like the other stories, this one didn't say much about what John Banks might actually stand for. Indeed, he hasn't even said if he will stand for Mayor of Auckland at all yet or not. But the Sunday Star Times scoop did say this. According to focus group testing carried out by the bank's team, many voters would welcome having his name on the ticket. Had the Sunday Star Times actually seen this focus group research or were they just reporting outcomes passed on to them by what the paper called the bank's team? Detailed info on what potential voters in Auckland thought about a candidate previously stricken by scandal and bogged down in court cases, well, that really would have been the basis of a good story. But as it was, the headline on this yarn could have been simply another former politician hires consultants. Tracy Watkins finished her Sunday Star Times editorial last weekend with these thoughts. The creeping influence of campaign strategists from the national political scene should worry all of us. Auckland's problems are too big for a campaign won on slick soundbites. And she's right about that on both counts. But these campaign strategists from the national political scene seem to know they can count on journalists from the national media scene to amplify their messages and their plans. In recent months, we've seen politicians such as Vernon Tava and Alfred Naro float the idea of new political parties in the media, and they got big bursts of coverage in the press, but both quietly rolled back their plans, presumably after weighing up the public response, or lack of it, to all that free publicity in the media. And if John Banks hired strategists for hoping that the media would provide the same service for them this past week, they would have been happy.
After the Sunday Star Times story last weekend, News Talk ZB had the Herald's Auckland Issues reporter Simon Wilson on. Simon Banks has uh, retained Topham Gurin, which is the New Zealand digital and creative agency that helped Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison unexpectedly get re-elected. There's some pretty strong armoury in his arsenal, isn't there? I think there is, and it's interesting that Banks hasn't actually announced that he's standing for mayor. What he's announced is that he's looking at it, um, and he's got, uh, in Topham Garam, he's got a very, very credible, uh, very skilled uh, team analysing the political world in Auckland and, and advising him on whether it's a good idea, doing the focus groups, doing the surveys. And in the end, they all seem to agree that it wasn't actually very likely John Banks would stand. Give us a percentage. Chances that this will actually happen Simon Wilson, what do you put it at out of a, as percentage of a hundred? This is back to banks that now. It, that back it will to happen banks. as in that he will actually formalise and stand. Yeah, let's just let's I'm just go for standing. I'm going to say I'm going to say thirty percent at this point. Okay, I think he's flying a kite, and um, I think it might you might find there's not a lot of wind under it. Yeah, it, and also it's a dumb kite. Um, so quite a lot of time spent there on News Talk ZB airing an idea they reckoned was both dumb and unlikely. The following day on RNZ National's Morning Report, Kim Hill asked John Banks whether he would actually stand. Good morning, Kim. Well, this is a blast from the past. Isn't it? it is. I feel like it's Groundhog Day. It's only the cricket that's keeping me grounded this morning. Are you going to stand for mayor? Well, we're looking at it. I mean, Auckland deserves better than vague promises and more of the same. And it certainly felt like a bit of a blast from the past when John Banks resumed his old habit of saying things in groups of three and using three adjectives where one would do. I want to make sure that the revigorated, rejuvenated renaissance John Banks, if I can say that to you, Kim Hill, uh, is going to actually have the cut through. John Banks repeated his insistence that he would chair Auckland Transport, but that was it in terms of his policy and whether he would really be a candidate or not. In effect, you are, bar a focus group report, standing for the mayoralty. Now, Kim Hill did try to find out what John Banks would actually stand for and got... I'm going to go out onto the street, onto the doorsteps and ask people what they expect of the council and can I produce the kind of leadership that is desperately needed for Auckland right now. You're going to go onto their doorsteps? I'll go onto their doorsteps, I'll go into the supermarkets, I'll go on the buses... But all that didn't dissuade Checkpoint later on RNZ National last Monday, where it was RNZ, and not John Banks, taking to Auckland streets and doorsteps to do market research. So we sent our reporter, Nita Blake-Person, and cameraman Nick Monroe out to see whether a Banks campaign was what Aucklanders are looking for. But how could they know when even John Banks himself won't say what it is or whether there will be one? The answers were predictably no use at all. Is it someone you'd be interested in voting for? No, at this stage I... I don't want any of them. Though this woman was on the money. He's considering it. What would you say to that? (laughs) Um, hmm, um, um, I don't know. I should be interested to see his policies. (laughs) And the point at which John Banks does have policies for people to respond to and is confirmed as a candidate would be the time to take to the streets and ask Aucklanders what they reckon. Now, next day, Tuesday, News Hub had John Banks in the AM show studio asking him about wheelie bins, Santa parades, climate change and lights on the Harbour Bridge, after which the host, Ryan Bridge, asked him this question. John Tamahiri has is, is passed an olive branch over to you and said, well, you could be the head of Auckland I'd much Transport. prefer John Tamahiri to fill golf every day. John Tamahiri has indeed told reporters that he's offered John Banks the job of the chair of Auckland Transport if he wins. But... 
Even though you wouldn't know it from the media coverage this past week, the Auckland Transport top job is not the mayor's to give to a political ally or anybody else. The appointments will be made by Auckland Council's Appointments and Performance Review Committee, Te Komiti Tohu Mete Arotake Turangi Mahi. The mayor is the chair of it, and John Tamaheri's running mate, Christine Fletcher, is the deputy chair. But they only have one vote each, and there are seven others with a vote as well. Back in May, when John Tamahiri first promised to sack the Auckland Transport Board, RNZ's political reporter Matthew Tunison spoke to several councillors, including Richard Hills, who told him this. A mayor can't just cut all the members off Auckland Transport, it's just not possible. They're appointed by councillors, and as far as I know, all the AT directors were appointed unanimously by the Appointments and Performance Committee of councillors, so I'm not sure how a mayor would come in and fire a board of directors on his own. Pity no one pointed all that out this past week. But you will see, read and hear much more in the media in the coming weeks about the Auckland mayoral contest and the expensively assembled teams of PR professionals the candidates have on their side will all have a hand in that. Who's in charge in Auckland and how they do it is an issue of national significance, unlike, say, who becomes mayor of Nelson or New Plymouth, or even a bigger city like Christchurch. But there is a risk that by mid-October, those for whom the issue is a remote one will be sick of hearing all about Auckland and not issues in their own backyard. One who already is, is Ali Jones, a former Christchurch City Councillor and currently a local community board representative there. She's also a former News Talk ZB broadcaster in Christchurch and now a PR professional in the city as well. I was really disappointed um, that Tracy Watkins, who I really enjoy reading actually, um, or another journalist from the South didn't look into this whole issue beyond Auckland because I think the issue she raised was and is valid and I really appreciate her for shining a light on it. But we we should have heard how central politics plays a role in Christchurch, for example, our second largest city, and has done for some years now. And I wonder if this is to the detriment of the city and decisions being made, or maybe to the contrary. I think we can assume that you know this this kind of conversation, lobbying, using political strategists is indeed part of a strategy, but. It's the editors and the senior journos who pick the stories up and decide to run with them or not. I'm reading this about the bank story. I just wonder if there was a bit of FOMO with that, you know, that editors say yes to something that is essentially a non-story, but they'll pick it up just in case. And well, I, I two, just... two, two aspects of this, aren't there, Ellie? Because if he's got a team of people, some of whom are national political figures, and if he stands it is a significant factor in the election. So letting readers know uh, nationwide and in Auckland about that you think that is a legit story. But do you believe that the media is effectively being played? Because name recognition is huge in local politics, so effectively the media is being used. Yeah they are but it's still the, the reporters and the editors that are making the decision to pick that up and you're right about name recognition being one of the tick boxes for, for what makes news but name recognition is only there if media and journalists pick the story up and what we find in Christchurch and I'm sure other cities um, outside of Auckland find the same is that our stories are being told by other people if they're being told at all. Well it's not a new thing that professional political advisors will be hired and attach themselves to campaigns mm. and look at the media as well as you know advertising and so on as ways to get a message out or the profile of the candidate up. What, how should the media respond uh, to these sorts of tactics if you know the mere publicity, the floating of the idea is what the people behind it really want? 
Oh, I just think that editors and, and journalists have, have got to stand their ground and be consistent and they're picking up his stories and say, hey, look, no story there. Come back to me when you actually announce whether you're running and what some of your policies are. But you're a PR professional now, but also, of course, a, a former broadcaster in Christchurch. Is it realistic for news editors to shelve it because they think it's part of a, a publicity and PR strategy which is of benefit to that candidate? Absolutely. What's changed over the last goodness knows how many years, those are the sorts of decisions that news editors and journalists are paid to make and they should be stronger in, in their decisions. I, I think that you, you've got name recognition in someone like Banks, you've got the uh, the lobbyists and the consultants there providing all of the information that they need. So uh, yeah, maybe we need to resource our newsrooms better, train our journalists better and and allow our editors to make those decisions confidently. I mean, this problem that Tracy Watkins identified as, you know, the creeping influence of party strategists and national political figures in local elections, is it an issue outside of Auckland, say in Christchurch or elsewhere? Are you aware of it, that uh, national, national strategists are trying to influence uh, local body elections and co-opt the media if necessary to do that? See, the fact that you even ask that, Colin, does make me realise that there is not a national lens being put on this issue. In Christchurch, New Zealand's second largest city, central politics has been playing a major part. And in fact, um, the People's Choice Party, which is a a Labour-affiliated group, uh, has made no bones of its plans to dominate the community board uh, level of of, uh, local politics, for example, in this next election. But but that Uh, affiliation is known, right? So people who follow local politics would know it. About that. Yeah, but it needs to be reported on and analysed a little more. What effect has that had on voting? What block voting has there been? What decisions have been made that have affected the city and the progress and decisions made because of that block voting? That's exactly what Tracy Watkins was referring to and, in fact, deserved a far wider national lens rather than just a focus on Auckland. Now, that John Banks scoop, if we can call it that, in the Sunday Star Times was just one of a lot of stories about Auckland and Aucklanders in that particular edition of the paper last weekend. And on Facebook, you said, I don't think I've ever seen a more Auckland-focused edition of this national paper, uh, just two small Christchurch stories. Yeah, it's interesting. When I posted that on Facebook, I had a couple of friends in Auckland come back and say, come on, we're New Zealanders. But actually, we're New Zealanders made up of a whole lot of different parts of New Zealand, provincial areas, urban areas, and that's what makes us New Zealanders. But we are not seeing our stories being told, and by our stories, I just mean people outside of Auckland. Um, What's happening is that the narrative is being controlled by people outside outside uh, Christchurch and within Auckland primarily. Yeah, I see your your mood on Sunday wasn't improved later in the day watching the 6pm news on television. Um, cricket coverage on One News, live cross from a pub. Guess where? <laughs> Auckland. OK, on the second story, it was the gun buy- buyback in Christchurch at Rickett and Racecourse the day before, which was significant. Um, but you say just as a voiceover. So presumably you mean no actual reporters. Yeah, and uh, look, the point is others are controlling the narrative and that narrative increasingly only includes Auckland um, or an outsider creating the narrative about my city and region. You know, Here's an example. Christchurch has been called the most racist city in New Zealand. Now, I know for a fact that that was created by an Auckland journalist, came to Christchurch to look for burning crosses, and Kyle Chapman and his mates, we, we know Kyle and, and his organisation, and they were only too pleased to perform for the cameras. There's the story forever. It is often uh, referred to when we talk about... Uh, um, ethnicity issues and 
racism in Christchurch. But there's an example of a narrative, a story being created from a national perspective that now becomes who we are, and it's not. But just to take this back finally to where we began, uh, that John Banks story in the Sunday Star Times and then all the media coverage that, that followed on from that... That story, once the New Zealand Herald had reported it and, and kind of matched the story and talked to John Banks himself, got a bunch of quotes, that all went out the next day in all of the NZME, the Herald's publisher, all of its uh, regional papers, which are all North Island ones. So he wants to take part in, in the mayoral election in the biggest city in the country, and there are these interesting figures from politics in the background. They can't turn away from that story just because... Uh, the bank's team is being clever and saying, look, we'll, we'll get back to you in 10 days' time about whether we're standing and a policy or two. I think they can, actually. And I, I don't think it's about the bank's team being clever. There's nothing clever about pitching a story in a certain way and you've got someone who's got pretty good name recognition uh, as, as one of the ways that you feel that you're going to get into the media. I think news editors and journalists can stand their ground and say, uh, hey, look, not interested in that. And I'm often hearing of news organisations that are saying, look, we're not going to run that because we know it's going to be run uh, in other um, news outlets. Well, that certainly didn't apply here. This was a non-story, and I despair at these sorts of stories being picked up, and I think it's more to do with uh, poor resourcing, inexperience. I think it's also got a lot to do with entertainment as opposed to uh, real intelligent information. It's about what you can turn around quickly to fill the space, fill the airwaves, if you like, um, as quickly as possible. And I think that's what made this decision, and I think that's a shame. That was Ali Jones, a former Christchurch City Councillor and currently a local community board representative there. Also, she's a former News Talk ZB broadcaster in Christchurch and now a PR professional in the city. And, as you could hear there, she's feeling a bit let down by Auckland's grip on our nation's news media. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this week, but the Media Watch team will be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay of The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch. And we'll be back again with Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.